This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. I have been living in Rome as it was in 1559, courtesy of Mary Hollingsworth. Her book, Conclave 1559. Mary, uh, congratulations on the book. I have, um, as many Brits have, I have uh, elections on my mind, and I've been very dissatisfied with elections and the people they throw up. Why should I care about an election that happened in Rome in 1559? Well, in the context of the, of the current elections, because exactly the same thing motivates so many of the people taking part. I mean, the, the idea that you've got to be on the winning side, you can't win yourself. And the key thing is to be on the winning side. And do you remember, you know, there's a sort of point at which um, during Liz Truss's um, election, whatever you call it, several people, some sort of quite big people, suddenly switched from Sunak to Truss just for exactly the same reason as they did in 1559. Because if you were on the winning side, and particularly if you'd been the one to hand out sort of the, the, the vote that changed the thing, um, changed the election, as it were, you you would get a job. You would get, a, you know, a good job in the cabinet or, you know, slightly more esoteric in the 16th century. But, um, but effectively, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, it was government... Um, that the church, I mean, the Pope was, uh, did have the ultimate say in a sense, so does the Prime Minister. But um, it was, it, the, the technically, the College of Cardinals was, <coughs> sorry, uh, was the um, the, cab the cabinet, if you like. Um, and there was sort of, obviously, some were more important, some cardinals were more important than others. So it was a sort of inner circle and an outer circle, and the people who were completely out. You see, I'd like to think that um, this was a church election, and I'd like to think that everyone was honourable and honest and straight down the line. But the way you paint them, they're not at all, not at all. They're as grubby as modern politicians. Absolutely, if not grubbier, because they didn't have the sort of, you know, they didn't have, the, they didn't, they didn't sort of squirm in even vaguely at faking letters and sort of just inventing you know, if they want if they wanted something to you know they would just invent to make sure that something was right so i mean it it, it is a very i just think one of the things the reason that i was fascinated by the whole um concept of the conclave was just watching raw power and how watching it at work and how you get it and how you keep it and and also and also in the context of extreme physical discomfort because I mean, it's one thing when you're in a conclave for three or four days, but three or four months and it changes from high summer to freezing cold winter in the Vatican where there were, you know, there were fireplaces, but it was marble floors. I mean, it must have been unspeakable. Yeah, and one of the details, I mean, your book is fabulous in detail. I've been into the Sistine Chapel and you go in and you're one of thousands and <laughs> um, some bloke says, quiet, please. And you move on in your shuffle and you're lucky if you can see the ceiling. These guys used it as a dormitory. They slept in there. Then it had to be fumigated because presumably the... There uh... was sort of, I, I can't exactly, hang on, there were 20 something... 20-something people sleeping in the Sistine Chapel. I mean, I know when there are, you know, when there are, um, 
when you're going round it as a tourist, you know, 20, if there were just 20 people in there, that would be, be great. Be empty. But don't forget, they're not only are they lying down on their beds in this in the Sistine Chapel, but they're also they're accompanied by you know, four or five other people. So we're talking 80 people sleeping in the same place, sleep using their um uh piss pots and their um commodes in the room you know they they didn't have their there was very very um limited washing facilities and you could they didn't people didn't really and one of the things interesting about keeping clean in 16th century was they tended they didn't wash in quite they didn't do yes washing it it was they what they did was change their clothes every day so if you were if you were rich and concerned about you know your hygiene you would wear clean a clean linen shirt every day for example and clean underwear um such as it was and and that in a sense probably did keep you fairly clean um yes. <laughs> oh, smell yeah. free but 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 the stench must have been awful i mean once people start getting really ill and there would have been things like i mean there would have been you know lice fleas rats i mean just don't go. And the food would be half, you know, sort of leftover food lying around. And um, it just doesn't bear thinking about what, the, why. But to need fumigating, I mean, that is quite serious. Yes. I mean, it must have been really poisonous. But what comes out of this, and indeed what we are living <laughs> through in the UK, is power seems to be the most glorious thing you can have in this life. I've never had it, but these guys will go to vast lengths to attain it and keep it yes i think <coughs> sorry i think that's one of the very interesting things about the um about the 16th century well it's about the all the renaissance and the middle ages but it, the, the point is that the church was the one route which a non-noble person would acquire noble status because once you're a once you're a noble you have the same status as a duke uh, you were second, you, you know, you, you were behind princes and kings, but you were ahead of earls and marquises. So, I mean, it was quite a statusful, statusful position. And if you were ambitious, it was the way up. Because if you couldn't, if you didn't, if you weren't born into a family, then um, that was the only way you could climb. And there are very good examples. I mean, the, the Medici family, that's how they stopped climb from being bankers up to uh, being dukes and then grand dukes via the church. Yes. Now, on the cover of your book, Conclave 1559, Ippolito d'Este and the papal election. Who was this bloke, Ippolito? Um, Ippolito, so is the Italian pronunciation, is um, he's the second son of the Duke of Ferrara. Uh, Duke Alfonso, and his mother was the famous Lucretia Borgia. So his grandfather was Pope Alexander VI. So he was born noble, so he didn't have to worry, but he was the second son, so traditionally expected to um, go for a career in the church. And the Este family had enough contacts to make sure that he got promotion within the church his career succeeded and particularly because he became close friends with he went to France and joined the French court as a guest um several guests sort of they're always foreign guests at the French court and he became a particularly close good friend of um 
uh, Francis I, King Francis I, because he wasn't a French courtier, because he didn't, he wasn't looking for a position in the French court. He wasn't, I mean, he was just different. He must have been quite a breath of fresh air to the king who was surrounded by obsequious courtiers, right. roaring courtiers. Okay. So um, how come he is central to your telling of the story? Is he one of the people seeking advancement? Yes. Well, he certainly, he, he was definitely um, ambitious, but he, you know, he had the money, he had access to the money to buy his position and he wanted to be Pope like his, um, I mean, it's difficult, it's difficult to say how much to, 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 for somebody nowadays to understand quite the amount of power that the Pope had. I mean, he was a secular ruler and also technically, you know, I mean, he could excommunicate at will um, anybody that belonged to the church. I mean, obviously, it's slightly different by 1559 because Protestants had, had the Protestant church had broken away. But still, the, the power of, of the power of being pope was enormous, and also the access to wealth was also very substantial. And I mean, I'm trying to understand the mental setup of these people uh, because um, apparently, I mean, they ate on a gargantuan scale. They ate and they gambled, and presumably um, uh, there was a bit of heterosexuality as well. I'm sure there's no there's I, some some I mean there were definitely gay cardinals and there were definitely um, straight cardinals but there there were relatively few cardinals that didn't have um, sexual relations of some sort and a lot of it's amazing how many maybe half the cardinals in the college had children I mean that is a lot of cardinals if you think about it I mean as percentages go that's the ones we know about and was that so. They was, didn't, but they simply didn't care. They were, they were, they didn't. There was, although they were technically supposed to be um, um, celibate. Uh, celibate. There, most of them weren't. The only people, the only ones that really had any obligation to be celibate, were the ones that were um, priests. And very few cardinals, or less than half the cardinals in the college, were um, ordained priests. Hippolyto Deste wasn't ordained as a priest, and the and other. He had, a mistress and three children and the other thing that um, amazed me was the amount of drinking um two liters a day the average consumption in the cardinal's household two liters a day mm. i mean i don't know how many people are sharing that but i mean no no that was straight per person no, there, there was a lot of um Hippolyto had to supply wine and food for all the French cardinals as well as himself. And that's not just, don't forget, it's not just the cardinals, it's the cardinals with their entourages. So, you know, the sort of four or five or whatever people who were in the in, in the cell with them. So there were quite a lot of people involved, but still, however, you know, you however small the jugs are and uh, however you phrase it, they drank a lot. Uh, and and I think I think the other thing we should say probably is it wasn't fourteen percent proof like it is yes. you know nowadays. I think it was probably a lot lighter than that. It would be a lot more like I don't know Beaujolais Nouveau, which you know is lighter. Yes. That sort of it would be quite young wine. Um, um, and uh, there, there, there's a lovely sentence here. It said there were no musicians or dancers to entertain their guests, um, and uh, the squires bearing their great 
platters of meat. Um, he'd left his personal carver behind. I mean, I didn't know that a way to earn your living at that time was to be a professional carver. Yes, it was a. It, it was quite, it's quite an enjoyable. I mean, it, it, if you think about it, it's quite a skilled job to you know carving. I don't know. Um, in my family, my father was the carver, and he was actually a very yes. good carver. And he taught my brother how to how to carve. None of. I, I mean, I haven't a clue. If I'm given a carving knife. I mean, I I appreciate. I stick the fork in and you know carve, but I don't. My father could produce really thin slices of of ham and chicken and things, very beautiful. But I I couldn't, and it, it's an art. And on top of that, in 16th century, there was very much a sort of display thing of it. So you'd sort of, you know, I don't know, rip open the 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 ball, the the suckling pig, you know, with a sort of single zip. You know, I I, I they would, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what the sort of things were but they were there were they, it was very much part of the presentation food was one of the ways of showing how rich you were and how grand you were you know no. what you ate <clears throat> how many dishes there were for each course um and just the whole your whole attitude towards food lots of banquets for example there's one particular banquet which Hippolyto had in something 50, uh, 1550 something um and he had there was a long table, and he had a, a mechanical fish swam all the way back up and down the table by means of some mechanical. He had to press a button, and something happened. But it was mechanical rather than obviously rather than electrical. But it, in the in the end, it, it it kept stopping this fish and opening up to display all its all the, the toothpicks. So the guests could take their toothpicks and then it would sort of whiz on again and open up and more toothpicks would be displayed. I mean, that kind of thing, slightly funny, but, you know, sort of, sort of something that's slightly, you know, that's sort of lightheartedly amusing, but also oh, clever. I, I want one. I want one. Now, this conclave, <laughs> um, were the people there who wanted to be Pope, did they go around having a sort of meals meetings for supporters did they do what people now do did they play the room they certainly did so you can just kind of you know you'd have to you have to imagine i don't know um i don't know whether it's worth naming names or for, for your podcast but i don't know um you you sort of it, it imagines you know one of the sort of i don't know um jacob Rees-Mogg, for example <laughs> sort of inviting sort of five or six of his mates round, you know, you know, in the last week or so for, a, you know, a quiet supper at home, you know, um, where they would discuss um, who, you know, for example, they all, you know, they would all agree and they would discuss who else they could persuade to vote for Boris and, and all this kind of thing. And, and yes, for certain, absolutely. That's what the meetings, you know, you'd have meetings and you'd also, you'd make, you'd make friends with other allies and you'd send your, um, you know, you, one of your courtiers to, to other meetings to sort of spread the word, and it would all be, but it would all be done very, very carefully. People understood the understood the necessity of absolutely not spilling the beans, because if you <laughs> spilt the beans, that was it. You certainly wouldn't have been chosen as a conclavist. <clears throat> were were there groups around nationality? There's lots of French and there's lots of Spanish. Um, so were they automatically on the same side? Um, 
yes, I mean the interesting, the important point is that the Spanish and the and the, the French party and the Spanish party were the two basic antagonists within the within the College of Cardinals. But the, and the reason they're called they were as it were called French and Spanish is not so much to do with their nationality, but more to do with the um, uh, the location of their benefices. So Ippolito, who was very definitely Italian by birth, um, his benefices were mostly in France. So he was con- he was head of the French uh, party in, in in the Vatican and the fifteen fifty nine conclave, but at the the head of the Spanish was one of the Farnese um, cousins, who was also another Italian, but somebody who had the favour of the emperor and king of Spain. <clears throat> and so his his um, benefices were all in the imperial um, world. And, uh, and the point being that if you voted against your, you know, if you vote, if you were a French person and you voted for a an imperial candidate, you'd probably lose your income so the moment did- the conclave closed. How did that benefice income work then? You took it, you, you, each benefice is worth something, and it was each benefice had a, a, a fixed formal value and a fixed formal rate of income. And quite a lot of benefices also had sort of um, perquisites of various sorts. So the Archbishopric of Narbonne, for example, got an enormous amount of wine as part of, you know, a sort of as an additional income, if you like, um, in a way that, you know, you think Worcester and Harrison didn't have, weren't very hot on the, <laughs> on the, on the wine front, certainly not in those days. Um, they, um, but and that guarantee that those particular prices established the the sort of pecking order, um, but the reality of the actual income was quite different, <clears throat> and that was depended historically on various things that you know various kings had done over the years and things that they'd added you know sort of um, I don't know gifts that had been added to each bishopric or um, abbey in particular. Those were sorts of, people would leave money and things to. You know, particularly valuable and complete, important, influential abbeys, that kind of thing. Now, you have written quite a lot about this time in Italy. What is it that fascinates you? I mean, reading this book without any deep knowledge of this time, I'm just fascinated by how, like us, they were. Um, they didn't have uh, the running water and sewage that we have, um, <laughs> but the uh, the buildings were were quite nice. Um, they seemed to have the possibility of a, 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 a sh- shorter life than we enjoy. But what is it about them that fascinates you? So you keep coming back. Um, I think I think well, in a way, it's the, one of the things that you've just said. It's the fact that they're so like us. Or more, put it to put it more bluntly, we are all the same, really, under the skin. Yes. It's just sort of okay, you know, we've got slightly better lavatories than they had. Yes. I don't think, um, you know, this. And but on the other hand, they probably had better quality food than we have. I mean, they didn't have a lot of additives, or I don't know. I mean, you know, we can. I think if you if you manage to avoid things that um, diseases for which they there wasn't any particular. Killer. They didn't really understand the cure, like appendicitis, for example. If nothing, very few people die of appendicitis now, but anybody who got appendicitis and they pretty well in those days just died. 
Um, so, but lots of people lived until well into their eighties. I mean, a lot of you know, particularly, obviously, quite wealthy people who didn't have people who didn't work work physically could obviously um, lived longer. Clerical people, um, scribes, all this kind of thing. Um, women had a tough time because childbirth was lethal. I mean, it was, I don't know what percentage of women died in childbirth, but it's quite as, you know, a third or something like that. It's 30 something percent. Quite a lot. It's quite a, it's quite a significant proportion. Mm. Um, so, but, but by and large, they didn't, I mean, you know, they, they, but there were um, lots of diseases they didn't get. They didn't get things necessarily things like dementia and old diseases we get of old age. And they, you know, I mean, apart from their teeth, that was another problem because, of course, they the rich ate a lot of sugar, um, and their teeth fell out. But um, you know, they were on the verge of developing false teeth. They there were ways they had glasses, and and you know, they they could. Um, I think the difficulty, of course, would be reading by candlelight. However bright the candles are, it's still quite hard work reading at night. And they got gout. And they definitely got gout. I think all of, I, mean, I think, every, I mean, they, I've, I haven't, I've tried to work out something, you know, about this, but I, I cannot, I, although it, it evidently uh, runs in families in the 16th century, um, it, medical knowledge nowadays doesn't seem to think it's genetic. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's to do with a, a, a diet that is, is very rich in red meat and red wine. Um, very little water is drunk because it wasn't very safe. Um, but actually, they I mean, the Italians are not not the Northern Europeans, but the Italians ate quite a lot of vegetables. They, for example, they ate salads, which were, you know, salads. Yes. You know, made of vegetables. I mean, some of them had other things in them, you know, sort of. But uh, but basically, they ate their greens. They ate and they, you know, they in a way that the Northern Europeans didn't. So here we have Conclave 1559, the papal election of that year. Was it one of those times where life changed? It was different before from the way it was after? Was it uh, a tipping point? It certainly was because the character of the Pope that was elected is completely was completely different to the prede his predecessor. I can't quite think of an ex a very good analogy as to what the predecessor was like, but in modern... Uh, it, 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 he... He was mind-bogglingly ghastly, sort of. Um, <laughs> it's it, you know, sort of completely hardline, cruel, and you know, his idea about his idea of. I mean, he would kill all Protestants for a start, but his idea of of um, running the church was just to, you know, basically kill anybody that didn't belong and enforce strict adherence to the rules. I mean, the sort of meat on if you didn't eat if you ate fish on sorry if you ate meat on a friday for example you know you, you could be thrown into prison they, but there were people who went round rome <clears throat> the streets of rome on a friday morning to smell to see who was cooking meat i mean that kind of mentality that sort of whereas the person who came after him was a moderate um a compromiser a pragmatist and and basically a decent person. He, he, for example, particularly important, he sent Hippolyto to France 
to help Catherine de' Medici, who was in the process of trying to reconcile Protestants and Catholics. Um, and he sent Hippolyto to France to sort of, well, to get her in involved in the same way. And he made a mistake. He went, for example, he went to attend a Protestant service wearing his cardinal's robes, which was a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> and the Pope, the Pope sent him a letter saying, you know, you, I don't think you should have done that. And he said, you know, I, but I understand why you did it. You just shouldn't have worn your robes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't, you know what I mean? He wasn't ticking. It wasn't sort of, you know, end of career. Um, well, he wouldn't have done it with the, the, the previous Pope wouldn't have allowed that to happen. But there's something, there was something really unpleasant about the, 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 fir the, the first of the Popes, past the, um, Paul, sorry, Paul the fourth. Um, his sort of mentality, he had, he adored his, his nephew who he, you know, gave endless money and, and, and um, power and everything too. And the, and the boy, the boy, yes, he was a young man was, I, I deeply, deeply um, offensive. I mean, sexually offensive, find, you know, sort of corrupt or on a spectacular scale. He didn't, he decided that he wanted some, for various reasons, largely to do with money. He invented an attack by the Spanish. He invented the um, the fact that the Spanish had made an attack on the poor old, on the, on the, on Paul IV. Um, he was just, you know, well, he was blind, I suppose, in, in every way except his eyes. <laughs> Mary Hollingsworth tells a fine tale in her book, Conclave 1559. Mary, you made me smile and I learned things. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. That's most enjoyable. <laughs>